Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Once you no longer are invested in the lies that their systems tell about us, it's so much more freeing, but also there's a better strategy that comes. And I think that hope is something that the settlers have have given to us in the absence of our land, and that's the betrayal of it. Um, If we just do all these things that maybe they will gift us some some crumbs at the table, and we just know that anything that blackfellas have won in this place has been taken from us. Another day in the colony documenting continued colonial violence against First Nations Australians. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Chelsea Wadigo has been a regular on speaking out as a tireless advocate for First Nations people. She's a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman with over 20 years of experience working within Indigenous health as a health worker and researcher. She is now a professor at the Queensland University of Technology where she leads Indigenous health, humanities research and practice. Tonight, I'm speaking to Chelsea about her new book, Another Day in the Colony, a mix of memoir cultural and colonial critique, assertion of sovereignty and a voice for change. This is a powerful, groundbreaking, game-changing book that is essential reading for all Australians. Professor Wadigo, Chelsea, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me, Larissa. I'm so excited about this new book, in case you couldn't tell from the introduction. (laughs) But before we dive into it, because I really do think it makes such a significant contribution in so many ways, I just thought we'd take a little step back for people who maybe haven't heard you on Speaking Out before, just to talk a little bit about the key influences you've had in developing your sense of social justice and the importance of the assertion of sovereignty. Oh, wow. That's a great place to start from. <laughs> <laughs> look, I think I, look, I'm a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman. I'm the product of a black father, a cosmetically apparent Aboriginal man and a white mother. And my understanding of the world was very much framed by the conversations that we had at our kitchen table growing up. And while we lived on the margins of the city of Brisbane, of Mianjin, it offered a viewpoint of the world that I think often doesn't get told about. And so I guess the book is, um, and everything I do, my thinking comes from a place the place in which I'm situated, historically, culturally, uh, politically, intellectually. And so when I think about social justice and I think about sovereignty, it has to be about um, that relationship to place and place in all kinds of ways. And I can only speak from my place. I can't speak for others. So I think for me it's important to recognise the limitations of what I can say as part of that conversation, because asserting one's sovereignty does not mean free reign necessarily. It means knowing the parameters from which you can speak and know and do. I would also, I guess, uh, add to that is one thing that comes through very clearly in your writing, and particularly this book, which draws a, a range of your ideas together, is that although I think there's some, some really groundbreaking work here, I love that you're so respectful and deferential to the people who go before you and particularly Arnie Leela Watson gets a huge conversation and but I love how you bring in other people like Richard Bell etc like real thinkers and you know I, I think that's a real strength of where you position yourself too. Yeah I mean um, this 
thinking comes from conversations with blackfellas and blackfellas that have come before us. And also, um, like, you know, this is not the typical, it wasn't written as an academic text, so it's not, doesn't follow the typical tradition of an academic text at all. You know, uh, a large amount of time was spent getting approvals from um, rappers and artists to be able to include their theorising in the book. You know, the best race theorising for me came at our kitchen table and the conversations with my father um, are in, you know, the words of Curry Rep, uh, you know, um, Kobe D, Richard Beller, artist, Vernon Arkey's work frames a whole chapter. So our, our thinkers are everywhere. They're not just in the academy and and particularly around race work. We don't do a lot of, you know, not a lot of um, uh, investment in, in the academy around race, but blackfellas have been deeply invested in knowing this thing because it's 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 had such a, it's framed our very existence in this place um, so violently. But the other two um, intellectual mentors for me were um, Dr. Ani little bit Watson and Uncle Shane Coggle who have just been in my life in all kinds of interesting ways but in the course of writing this book, I, I had sat at Annie Lilla's kitchen table, um, not to find out how to write a book, but because I was in a place facing two race discrimination cases and wasn't sure whether I was doing the right thing. Um, and I had lots of conversations during that process that just reminded me of who I was and where I come from and to stand in my power through all of these processes. And it's just been such a gift to be able to learn from the greats and our great thinkers come from this place here. Yeah, I love that about it too. Like it's so seriously in some ways, you know, it's a it's research, it's academia, but it plays such tribute to the knowledge system that we grow up in, which is eldership and of course the important voices of our artists. Now, before diving into the book, I just want to spend a quick moment talking about the title because that in itself, Another Day in the Colony, didn't just come out of the book, but was a whole evolution in itself. And I just wondered if you could share a little bit of the story of that very now famous hashtag. Yeah, so I, I like making hashtags that are distinctly black um, in, in in this place and to just frame our existence because oftentimes in our conversations online that include an international audience, you know, we're not black Twitter, we're black fellow Twitter. So we've, you know, distinguished ourselves. So when we're having conversations about race and colonialism, it's clear who our communities were talking to because we have to define those parameters. That's that part of our protocol. And so for me, I've understood the importance of, of hashtags to frame conversations that we're having with each other. Um, wherever we're at, you know, even just marking out Blackfella Twitter to the Indigenous Dads hashtag of we're claiming this conversation and we're in, in charge of it. Another day in the colony came, I, I can't remember how many years ago, and I remember being in conversation with um, one of the most staunchest sister, sisters on Blackfella Twitter, Melinda Mann, and I'd said something about another day in the colony, and she's like, that's a thing. And it was just a way to describe the everyday violence that we're subjected to. And, and you look up the hashtag, you'll find any number of stories and things that feature from really violent, horrific, you know, cases or, 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 and, and black deaths in custody, you know, to the everydayness of turning up to a meeting at work and being the only black person sitting at a table to talk about reconciliation. You know, it's the, the everydayness of colonial violence and reminding people um, that uh, settler colonialism is ongoing. It's, it's, it, this is an, an event 
it is a process and one that we are stuck in. So it's it's a kind of it's a bit of a real blackfellow humour in the sense of oh another day in the colony sort of sarcasm, but a very clear description of the reality of what life is like for us every day in this place. And I love too that it's kind of become a bit of a a, a saying in our everyday life. It comes up in my professional context with blackfellow colleagues when we have one yeah. of those <laughs> events that you're talking about, and now we just say, "Yep, another day in the colony," and it's given mm-hmm. us a kind of a shorthand language to be able to describe that very feeling, which yeah. is so important because it's it's also knowing that what we have to deal with it's not about us. And there's just something freeing when you have to experience this stuff and go, yep, another day in the colony. It is a way of kind of pushing back and going, I'm not going to carry this one. Yeah, it is. It does actually give you a great deal of strength, which kind of leads me into a couple of the big picture questions about the book too. And the first has to do with the fact that, I mean, you really do give us some very insightful but very personal experiences through the book. And I want to unpack them a little bit in Mm -hmm. a minute. But one of the things that I think is really striking about how you write and how you position is that you can write about things that are incredibly traumatic and, you know, heartbreaking, really profound, big sense of injustice. But you always do it from this position of the importance of sovereignty. There's a sort of strengths-based approach to it, which I think is really fascinating. And I was wondering whether that's you do that consciously or it's subconscious and instinctive. I do have a strong sense of like social justice. And so I feel like I'm not the most powerful when I'm up against the ropes. <laughs> I used to be a, in high school. I was a cross country runner, and I never went out first. I always sat back and then picked off one at a time. And I and I, I I I love the idea of coming from behind. And when people don't expect you, I think about Romaine Morton's um, "I'll Surprise You by My Will." That's very much how my way of being in the world is. If and so most. All of my writing comes from a place and often at a place where I've been told I can't do something or I've been denied something or other blackfellas have been denied something and that's what means that enables me to write something in two hours and get it out because I'm fueled by rage that Bell Hooks, Hooks talks of, um, but a, a rage that is wanting something better than what they're offering us. So it's about um, I write from a place of experience not to centre my lived experience, but to to write from there. And so I, it's just something that I do. And in terms of like our own protocol, I can only speak from my place. I can't speak for others. I can't represent other people. But there are times when I, the way in which I articulate my experience, people go, oh, you've, you've described what I feel. Well, that's, you know, captured it for me. And I like that I could do that, that it could be of service in that way. The other thing I've learned as, as an academic is, you know, we're trying to write in a certain way and to think in a particular kind of way. This book is, um, I wrote it at a time where I was on a period of, of leave because of, um, I, I just wasn't coping with what was happening in the world. And I actually had to take, I was forced to take leave. And I learned the importance of typing through the tears and typing in the tears. And that, um, and it didn't mean I was like trapped in my trauma. It was writing from the place and being in that place. Um, of course, I edited after the tears were wiped away um, and and shaped things. But it's writing for me is is therapeutic, um, and it gives me a sense of power at times where I felt powerless. There's certainly an enormous, and when you can't help but be really affected by some of the very personal anecdotes you put in there, not just your experience in academia, et cetera, but 
uh, which I also want to talk to a bit more. But, uh, you know, you do talk about things to do with your family, your relationships. Was it was it hard to do that or did it feel quite natural to be so open? You know, it feels like it's a very generous book in terms of giving us a snapshot, not just into your life, but into your heart, really. Yeah, well, I think this is a book that's written for blackfellas um, and it's conversations that we do have with each other. And I actually wanted to to be able to have those honest conversations with each other. I know other people read it. and I know this text could be weaponized against me in all kinds of ways and those that are close to me. I went through a protocol with this stuff that, that, that no one has been written about without um, having a conversation and reviewing what was what I've written and having discussions around that as well. Um, even from the sort of what seemed like the mundane stories with Eula quitting her job at, in the final chapter. Um, and what I loved in that process and that those conversations was the sense of validation that people felt in that it, it captured their experience of things in a way that made people think about the world a bit differently. So it wasn't, you know, it's not a misery memoir. Um, It's about trying to make sense of this place. And we can't unless we're honest about the realities of this place. And I wanted to model the kind of ethics that I believe in. Um, I can't, you know, at Flapples, we have to explain who we are, where we come from. And I remember Ian Anderson writing about um, Aboriginal protocol means our right to tell a story is earned by explaining our relationship to that story. As a race scholar, I can't write about race unless I talk about my experience of it. Uh, not to centre myself, but to, to, to come from that, that place. And so it, to me, it's about ethics of going, well, if I'm going to tell a story about something, I've got to declare my relationship to this story. And, and so people can understand not just the strengths, but again, the limitations of my knowing that I see it this way because of this story. And others can see it differently because they'll have a different journey or a different story to tell. Maybe their kitchen table was different to mine. Maybe their home was situated in a different place to mine. Um, and so it gets gets us thinking about the multiple realities that can exist when we stand in our own truth and our own stories and we can recognise that other people's stories can coexist. I have to say, when I first read the book, I had a very, I don't know, like almost a, I had a huge emotional reaction to it. And I had a moment about a third of the way in where I just had this cathartic cry. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because of the, you know, it wasn't because of the tragedy and injustice in it. It was actually because of the strength in it and because I felt it was describing an experience that I felt. And even myself as a writer across fiction and nonfiction, I felt I'd never been able to explain before. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think that's a really powerful thing. And I just wanted to preface that because I'm going to go into a couple of stories um, that you've shared in the book to kind of um, draw out some of your ideas. But, you know, I think just drawing on what you're saying about the what you've tried to achieve and how important it is to speak from a place. It, I think it's such a, a powerful way that you do that because it does connect to all of us so emotionally because it speaks to an experience, even if it's not exactly the ones you've had. Mm. Now, one of the ones, um, you know, one of the really moving, powerful anecdotes in the book uh, is about a drawing. You sort of started with a, a drawing your daughter did on Harmony Day. And mm. I wonder if you could share that with us because I think it illustrates as you really articulate the way colonial society tries to shape our identity. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, look, this is the first story and one that I had to get approval from my child. And I'd used this story in teaching. I taught a subject called Aboriginal Women as part of an Aboriginal Studies major. Um, and I used to get the students to watch Jeddah and unpack some of the discourse surrounding it, particularly with the trailer and how it's framed um, and how Aboriginal women are depicted. And, of course, we used your work as well. Um, <laughs> white Lives of the Feminist Movement was uh, core reading as a sister girl talking to the white woman. So we really looked at the positioning of Aboriginal women. And I used to use the poster. Anyway, uh, there was grade two. Uh, my child had to do a picture for Harmony Day and they had to draw a picture of their culture. And they drew a picture of me and um, my husband at the time outside our gunya. And I was holding boomerangs and he was holding spears. And um, the children were featured as animals and elements. That was because each of them have a Yugambeh middle name that it refers to an uh, animal or element. Um, so the kids were featured, but they were featured by their, their language name. And what was really interesting is when I looked at the picture of, and, and I was in a red frock outside my gunya, and my a love interest was standing above me with his big spears. And... Um, at the Jetta poster that I'd used in teaching, it was a reproduction of that picture. And I remember being horrified because I was like, okay, this child's been raised by two Aboriginal parents, has been exposed to some highly sophisticated conversations at our kitchen table about Aboriginality and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Yet when asked to, to, to depict her culture, she put us in another place, in another time, in an hour outside of our own home. So I talk about this in the, in that uh, first chapter about my thinking around that and the way how quickly um, Myers never watched the movie, never saw the picture, but was able to reproduce it. She knew the story that was being asked of her that she was had to perform to. But I'm not sure I should give any spoilers, but I also then get to make sense of it in a different kind of way when I think about the representations I saw growing up coming through school um, and, and what I had done as a parent that gave her, that grounded her to place in a way I hadn't realised. It's a, it's a wonderful part of the book. I love it. Another thing that you look at, and we'll pick up on uh, the issue of Aboriginal women and feminism here, is that you, I think through a, you know, a really emotional and important example, talk about the complexities of uh, First Nations women in academia through your experience with writing something that you felt was an important truth and how that kind of hit you up against an Australian feminist legal publication. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that experience and some of the things that you draw out from it. Yeah, so I was a few years ago. I um, was invited by um, Alison Whitaker and uh, Dr. Nicole Watson, um, who was guest special editors of this journal. And it was a special issue on Indigenous women's writing in the academy, and we could write on anything and race and all this kind of stuff and literature. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I, I come across this book, and a few um, you know black fellows have been talking about, it, particularly um, academics and those in legal circles. And it was a book called Salt Water by uh, someone who's now a magistrate, Kathy McLennan, and it was about her two-year stint in Townsville when she worked for the Aboriginal Legal Service. Now, the book's won all kinds of literary awards. It was published by UQ Press, but I had some concerns with the text, in particular the way in which Aboriginal characters were described and, and the way in which they were, and because these are real people, it was a real case. And I found that for me, in my reading of it, that the Aboriginal characters were racialised in a particular kind of way that was quite violent. And so I did a I did a, a review and a critique of the text, and I actually um, understood the text, ironically, 
by another book published the same year by UQ Press, which was Finding Eliza, of course, because of your amazing book, because this book followed in a tradition, a tradition of, of, of settler fictions that we've been exposed to for some time, you know, the kind of trapped in the tropics kind of tale of um, the white woman um, and the natives. And what I found, I had a research assistant work on this as well and because it's uh, discourse analysis and found all the, the language and there was like 180 references to what could be considered as, you know, kind of sort of racialising logic that replied to the Aboriginal characters and com- contrasted this with how non-Aboriginal characters were, were portrayed. But I also looked to how then the author was able to then be placed as a kind of, uh, as a thought leader on Indigenous justice issues as a result of this text. It got submitted, got, got great reviews, and it was all fine. And then a few, um, somewhere down the track, the actual um, editorial uh, manager decided that it uh, they had concerns with it and there was a defamation risk attached to it because there was an implication, even by facts, that perhaps the author was racist and therefore it couldn't be published. And there's a, the case is spelled out in the in the book how that played out and there's it's been told in different places. But what's interesting is so it couldn't be published. I got an editorial instead and they gave an, a spot to a white man in a special issue of black women's writing to write about defamation law to justify why my voice was excluded from this text. The funny part about all of this is that um, this book is published by UQ Press as well, and they've approved it to be released. So that chapter that was deemed unpublishable actually features as a chapter in this book. So it does speak to sensitivities that still exist in academia, as you rightly point out. And I wonder, given we've had all of this discussion about Black Lives Matter, allyship, hashtag me too, from your experience going through that and seeing how people responded to, you know, what was quite frankly, uh, as you lay out in in the book, you know, a fairly robust academic critique in a tr- in a long tradition of First Nations people critiquing colonial literature and storytelling. Where do you think the state of play is having gone through that yourself and being in such a kind of extraordinary experience of it all firsthand? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, this is the reality of settler colonialism is that it doesn't go away and it doesn't change. I mean, it may change the sort of formations in some way, but the process itself is still the same. And I think sometimes there's a lull ourselves into a false sense of hope that because we're as educated as them or because we, we, you know, now in these places that we can change how things are. And, and that's a lie. This place is working as it as it was designed and it will always do that. And so for me, it's about no longer being surprised by this stuff. Hence the, you know, well, another day in the colony. This is the place that they've designed. The challenge for us is then what do we do as a result of it? And what I try to do in the book is you know, most chapters, I think now every chapter has the happily ever after that's often denied of us in texts that are written about us. I was insistent on making sure that in the midst of the everydayness of colonial violence that blackfellas are reminded of the power that we have. The conclusion on my telling the story about the, what that journal did is the the fact that the editorial manager, um, the main manager and half of the board no longer are there with that, that journal anymore. But yet my publication stands in my book 
on my land because the funny thing was those people told me if I wanted to get it published, I'd have to get it published in another country. Funnily enough, they were wrong and I got it published. And in amongst that telling of the story is the front cover of the journal that I was excluded from. Um, to their credit, Alison and Nicole gifted me that, the front cover wearing a shirt, did you forget whose land you're on? I love the winds that we get in the midst of the everydayness of this place. And as a storyteller, as a sovereign storyteller that um, Romaine Morton speaks of, it's so important that we tell these parts of the story. I think that's probably why, as a First Nations reader, I responded so strongly as well, that there is always that, that reminder of those winds. And they do feel rare, but they're so important and profound. And I think the other thing that was is a real kind of gift in the book I found was just being able to say it's a colonial system explains why we can't change it. When people ask you, why do we have a Royal Commission into deaths in custody and people are still dying at the rates that they're dying, it's all explained in that context that the system is designed. I think finding that language is actually, although it's incredibly sobering and can feel almost overwhelming, it's actually quite liberating. I just want to draw another thing from that in terms of the depth of the critique you have generally on this system, but also specifically in relation to, say, the text we've just been uh, talking about that you critiqued in that article, is, of course, you have very personal experience that you share in the book with the justice system, with the legal system, one might prefer to call it. It's very poignant and infuriating your own reading about your particular contact with it, which obviously happens at a couple of critical times. And I wondered if you could share share with us those circumstances and how you kind of really responded to those incidences. Yeah, so I kind of like um, I mean, in between each chapter are some visuals pages that just um, are divided that aren't always referred to in the text, but they include some of that story from um, getting in trouble with juvenile aid as a teenager in the city of in, in a city um, in the CBD, to um, living in country Queensland and getting an obscene language charge and being detained in custody over it, to a more recent example of being in the valley and being again on a public nuisance charge being detained in custody. I tell the stories not to go, oh, look what terrible things happened to me. I want to just show like the everydayness of these systems and how they work. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you do or how legitimate you may think you are in the eyes of these people that you we all treated the same at the end of the day for the most part. Um, our ability to respond to it, of course, is different depending on our circumstances and class, of course, um, is part of that conversation. Even in those stories, I wanted to speak of power and I wanted to speak of the fact that there is an account of us that we must encounter but we also have a story that we can tell about those that don't align with their story. And we have to remember our own account of things. And often we go through their processes, whether it's through the, the legal system, complaints processes, we are, we are forced to have to face the violent account of us. And, and there's a violence in that. And this is why black storytelling is so important and knowing one's own story and standing in that truth is that we can contest. Uh, it's what holds us and protects us to go, well, this is my account of things. And I know this to be true, irrespective of what they say about me. And so even with the framing of the book, each of those inserts between the chapters are a representation of me. And I want to kind of mess with the reader a little bit to show the various ways in which 
the stories can be told about us that may be partially true or may not be true at all. And what's what should stand there is our own stories, which is the chapters that's that kind of confuse those representations, if that makes sense. I love that you did include the uh, picture that your daughter drew that we spoke of earlier, though unfortunately it's not in colour, so we don't see the red no. dress. The, the, the red frock, it was, it was pretty spectacular. <laughs> This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and my guest this evening is Professor Chelsea Wadigo. Tonight we're delving into the themes and topics raised in her latest book, Another Day in the Colony. But first, let's take a musical break. Chelsea, who's your favourite musician right now and why? Oh, it's it's the Tedda Barker. Um, she is um, everything. Um, you know, she, in terms of truth telling, she tells the truth about. She writes from her place, from pain and from joy, and it's just so honest. And on social media, she is who she is. She's not a performer. She is who she is, and she just embodies the power of of the black matriarch, what it is to be sovereign. And I mean. The lyrics, the lyrics um, have given so many, particularly black women, life in this place at a time when we often feel so powerless. So, um, yeah, Barker is where it's at for me. Well, I don't think Barker's ever had a better intro than that. <laughs> so let's hear from her now. This is Barker with the track 22 Clan. Straight. My team heavyweight, one mob reppin', we the first to originate. Y'all can try discriminate, you've been doing it anyway. We just keep stepping, coming up, watch us elevate. Do side, Taylor Park, rivers in the pen rip. Mac Ridge ripping, no, I never let the pen slip. Mary's at the crime, bro, way up to the ridge. One log to the mob, out in west side. So said, you better be ready to get it. I'm spitting the kick in the rhythm and moving the difference. I go on and listen, we're bringing the vision. of fact, I get with it, we got them all dripping. Listen, Murph from the Mac town, out here in Blacktown. No question about it, Joe, we got to bring it back, so what's the half now? Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Where we be? B-N-E down to S-Y-D. Steady reppin' for our original piece. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Who we be? Running with the 22 clan. Where we be? B-N-E down to S-Y-D. Steady reppin' for our original piece. You say I'm oppressed, but you oppressed in the mark. Original 
That's Barker with the track 22 Clan. Professor Chelsea Wadigo is a leading scholar in the First Nations health sector and the author of the confronting yet insightful and game-changing book, Another Day in the Colony. Now, Chelsea, you have a few things to say about the subject of hope, which (laughs) I think people might find a little bit confronting. You say it's the most ridiculous strategy for blackfellas precisely because it doesn't actually do anything for us. Can you talk more about your views on this? Because actually they're quite compelling. I've got so much feels about hope. Uh, I've, look, and, I, and it comes from a place of being betrayed by hope. I think hope has betrayed us as blackfellas. And for me, hope is is a quite passive emotion, and it's something that we don't possess. It's something it's a, it's about a waiting for something to arrive. And so there is a chapter called F Hope, um, where I make the case for that, and it's drawing on the work of the African American writer Paul Beattie, who wrote The Sellout. And in The Sellout, he has this this um, the character has these stages of blackness, and the final stage is unmitigated blackness. And I remember taking this concept of unmitigated blackness to the various black health professional conferences. I got keynotes to speak to black doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, and there was another one in one year. Um, and I just took the concept of unmitigated blackness to speak to me about what it means to be an unmitigated black nurse, an unmitigated black doctor. And what I like about unmitigated blackness is it's it's kind of captures a sense of sovereignty that I hadn't heard articulated in that kind of way. But there's a line where he says uh, unmitigated blackness is basically not giving an F. It's the night in jail. It's the it's the serious black artist. It's and he says sometimes it's the nihilism that makes life worth living. Once you no longer are invested in the lies that their systems tell about us. It's so much more freeing, but also there's a better strategy that comes. And I think that hope is something that the settlers have have given to us in the absence of our land, and that's the betrayal of it. Um, If we just do all these things that maybe they will gift us some some crumbs at the table, and we just know that anything that blackfellas have won in this place has been taken from us. This place is violent, and it will never stop being violent. And there's no way that we can ever transcend race. It's We'll never, you know, get to the mountaintop and, and be free from it. It's always going to bear heavy down upon our lives. And for me, it's about what is the strategy for living in amongst that. Um, and I do believe that the place, um, the strategy for that is it has to be sovereignty. And it's that understanding of sitting at um, the kitchen table of Annie Lilla, the, the countless conversations with Uncle Shane, People who embody the very idea of it, who can speak of it, because some people can theorise about sovereignty, but they don't embody it. And I've just been so grateful to be surrounded by blackfellas who who just exude it. You feel it in their being, in their presence. But for me, relinquishing hope is not about waiting for something. When we, when we think about sovereignty, it's how do we turn up in every moment and every day. Um, and there's power that's from that position. Hope doesn't give us power. It just tell us, tell us, tells us to take a seat and wait, and we're sick of waiting. You do say the book is not about fighting back but of standing your ground. Why is that distinction important to you? Well, again, that's Annie Lilla rousing me. <laughs> um, so when I when I wrote the the manuscript, I asked uh, I had included some of her yarns in it, and I asked if she could read it and make sure she was happy with how she was framed. But she jetted the whole book, 
and sat me down and Uncle Shane did as well, read the whole book and sat me down and went through the, through every page. Like it was just such a, I was frightened, very frightened. Um, it was scary because I, you know, there were some things was like, no, nah, that's not it. Uh, I had written a lot about survival and she roused me and said, Chelsea, we're not survivors, we're more than that. And it's just changed my language now and thinking about living and not surviving and it just shifts so much. But she said to me, we're not resisting, we're just standing still and they keep battering us. And it just made me rethink this. And I was actually just having a yarn with someone today who's dealing with a race discrimination case at this moment. And we just talked about what it is to stand still and to stand in our power and not react to, 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 to violence in that kind of way and not react to, and, and frame our being around their processes and systems. And there's a, just a real power. And I think that's why we, we have that mind still here. It's grounding so that when we get those hits and when those waves come, we can still hold our ground. Um, and this is what it is to be in this place, in a place that's been um, designed to do away with our existence. Standing still here is so, so, so important. And we need to talk about what does that mean in our being every day. There's something in that that I just want to pick up too because it's such a thematic in your work. I think it's really important. Talk about how different it is to sort of shift the language from saying that we're resisting to that we're living and how enlightening that is. But in your work, you do look at the importance of of naming things, of speaking out, of calling out, of, of putting, almost putting a label on it so we can explain it, you're identifying it. Can you talk about why that's so important, the power of naming things? Look, I don't know. I just can't hold my mouth, I think, is the issue. Um, <laughs> um, but, I, I mean, I, at, at growing up, um, me and my dad would read the, the Courier Mail every every morning. Um, he would read it and then I'd read it and then we'd argue over it pretty much every day and everyone else would clear out of the kitchen. I was raised with this strong sense of, you know, never bowing your head, of knowing your place but also not knowing your place and knowing the difference between when you'd had to do one or the other. And so for me to name name the violence, to name it is to, so I don't own it. And I talk about these things, not finding a home in our hearts and a, and, and a place in our home, this kind of the, the, the violent logics of settler colonialism upon our own souls. And a lot of us have taken it on in ways that are so detrimental to our family life and community life. And so to name it, for me, to name it is to then know it and to know when it's not about me. And to know what to leave at the door, what doesn't get to, to, to occupy space in my head or my heart. And this has come about because as a parent, I've had to think about what truths do I tell my children? Because growing up at the generation of my father's generation, it was about working 10 times harder, about being better than, and that somehow we could outperform race. And I've since learned that to be false, but I know it was an important strategy at that time of my father's life because he was born at a time where it wasn't even illegal to discriminate on the grounds of race. So for him, he had to just keep working because he had to feed us kids. We're in a different time where there's we need to then adjust the strategy. As I mentioned, there's so much of you in the book, uh, not just intellectually. There's emo- emotional relationships, a whole lot of things. How does it feel to have it out in the world? There's such a long process from getting the manuscript into it coming out. But when you first got a copy in your hands, how did it feel? A bit scary, I'll be honest. I'm used to writing. I like the you know the op-eds where you can you have a feeling or a thought and it goes out within 24 hours and you get response. This is something that was written at a time that was a real like the lowest point of my life, I think, and really questioning myself and and and, and writing this in a space of a few months while on sick leave. It was just 
just ridiculous that, that it happened. And so then when I got to sort of see it in the light of day when I was in a different kind of place but still in amidst some of the battles, uh, I was actually – I realised the importance of writing in those moments, even in the dark moments, you still got to write. And there's really – there's such important learnings that come in those moments that we shouldn't try and do away with the darkness to then get to a place of, of good thinking because there's such important thinking happening in those moments, even in the really tough times. So it was a lesson for me um, around that. But um, So I wasn't so judgmental of myself, having seen it, then having had that time to then reflect on it. Yeah, I, it's not really out, out yet. There's People have been reading it and kind of in conversation, and it's been really – I've been so excited about how Blackfellas have responded to this text because that's who it's written for. I, I love that it's doing things for black people because – too few black texts are designed for black readers, for black minds, black hearts and black souls. And this is in our indigenising moment in the academy. That's a, that's a sad indictment of things, that so much of the work about us is actually not f- for us. You're quite clear that you've written this for black fellas. And as, as I've shared, I had a very, very much a strong reaction to it as your intended audience. Were you expecting that much of an emotional response from that particular audience? Uh, no, I wasn't, because um, you never know what it's, what it's going to do, and I don't think you never preempt that stuff. Um, but I've had some people who have read it and have had experience with race discrimination um, cases, and stuff, so it's very close to them. And um, just go, you, you don't realise what this is doing, like it's doing something. So I'm excited about what it does, and. And it's not in a kind of knowing way. It's more of a how people then think about their place in the world and what they do with their story. Um, so I'm really like not wanting to go, this is a definitive book on this issue and this is how you should know the world. It's meant to spark conversations amongst mob and and debate and like let's yarn about this. And so I'm excited about the conversations that follow this it's it's not about citations but it's about the conversations that we have and that we take up our space that we need to have to have these kinds of yarns so I'm more I like I'm ready for the debates I'm ready for the let's talk about it and you know I'm not sure about this let's talk about it so I'm I'm as I like that side of things but um I'm curious to see what it does for people and I think um the meandering essay more recently on black power that really shook me in terms of the power of black writers writing for black people because of the response from black fellows on that. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking more seriously about that and, and how you respond to people when you do that for them because there is a responsibility there as well, I think. Um, and there's part of the reason why the final enjoy bit at the end was attached on was to give the black reader something because of I couldn't finish on that hope chapter. And so it's thinking about what's our responsibility to black readers when we do something that may really do something for them? if you know what I mean. Mm. There's a lovely list of songs at the back of the <laughs> book that you said brought joy while writing this book and it is a lovely thing for us to to have a, a little um, list of uh, music that we can turn to to make us feel empowered. The uh, I guess the other thing I was going to just ask you about audience, you've been very clear about who the audience is but there is no doubt there will be a lot of people who read the book who are not First Nations people because they will be interested in what you've got to say and they should read it. So what are you hoping that audience takes away from it? Um, I haven't thought of them, to be honest. I think about yarning as, as a way of teaching and how we like repeat stories over and over again. 
because at different times you're supposed to get a different message from them. And sometimes we can be privy to a story that's not really meant for us and we might, we'll get something out of it, but that depends on who's reading, when they're reading it and why they're reading it. And so I can't preempt what people are going to get from a yarn that wasn't designed for them. I know they'll get something, but it's up to the reader to think about what they're getting from it, why. And I just, I think, um, I don't think we've written enough about yarning as a way of the method around this. So I use stories to kind of not to know but to create a place to come and think. And so there is a place for whitefellas to think about this place through these stories, but that's they're the conversations they're going to have amongst themselves and not burden the black people closest to them with that learning because we do enough service as it is. So, I'm, you know, it would be great if it does do something for people and makes them think differently about this place and their own position, but it's, it's not the goal to teach settlers about our culture, about our trauma. Uh, and, and, and so some people may have a, have a strange encounter with this particular text because it is – I didn't um, footnote things. I wasn't going to explain things to an audience that didn't get it because it wasn't for them. But you can you can encounter stories and not get everything out of them, and it's okay. You don't have to take it all. You just take what you need. And so I think for some of those readers, just being prepared that um, I haven't catered for you, but I'm pretty sure you'll get what you need from this. And I had, you know, even in the editing process and dealing with publishers and stuff, reminding every – I've had to defend for every stage of the process that this is for a black audience and this is why we're doing this and we're not doing that insisting on my happy ending even though it seemed like it you know at one point I was I was sort of accused of being a bit petty about including something I was like no this is for the black reader though they deserve the happy ending and we're going to put it in there you know so I've had to fight in this process to remind that I'm of service to a black audience and all you know from the publishing house to the to the um to the reader they're driving black storytelling right now and the sovereign storyteller has to take up this storytelling wall and insist on that sovereign story. It, it is a thing and I think it's something that we can have more conversations about that because there are lots of actors that are complicit in that process. I guess the thing, one of the things that I really, when I was I first read it, I thought this would be such a great text for law students to understand what it's like for somebody to go through a system that they see from a very different point of view. You know, I'm sure the storytelling will, as you say, there'll be elements of it that are are hugely important to uh, particular sectors of the community who would never get to see or hear this experience in another way. I guess just wanted to look at the book in, a, in its broader context too, because we would classify it as, as you say, it's, as not an academic book, par- partly because it's not, if we're taking a very narrow definition, a very Western definition, it's not footnoted, you know, it's it's not written in that way. It includes the personal. There's no no um, sense that you're trying to be objective, as if that's something you, anyone can possibly be. All of those things that are very much about how Western academia is approached. Yet it feels to me that it's incredibly academic in the sense that it's rich with ideas, the history of ideas. You go back to where those ideas have come from, in the same way that we would talk about precedent or citing um, a body of work. 
work, you do that in a very cultural way. And and it feels to me that a book like this that's really indefinable, really, and I'd prefer mm. not to say it's not academic because I feel we only say that because we're judging it by Western standards. Yeah. Um, if so, in that way, it feels like this is part of a larger project that you've undertaken in terms of your role in the academy to really change those institutions, almost, you know, Trojan horsing yourself in there <laughs> to, to kind of, you know, crack open some of these constraints. Oh, look, um, I don't know where to start. But yeah, <laughs> yes, so I, as an academic, I'm very clear on who my work is of service to. I go to work in an academic institution, but the work itself is to be of service to um, my own community. And, uh, you know, we can talk about the tensions of navigating that, but I, I love the fact that I can, you know, raid this place for the tools I need to be of service to the work that we need done. And so um, uh, there's a joy in that, a cheekiness to it. And um, and I think, you know, that's why I draw on Saeed's work around the exiled intellectual. It reminds me of what a lot of black academics should be finding joy in or, or being in this kind of position. It's actually a really exciting place to be in, to think about how do we, you know, engage with these theories in a way that makes sure that mob understand what we're talking about and that even what we're talking about actually actually properly theorises about our experiences in, in our world. You know, like I, I hate the idea that there's a disjuncture between what I what I write in an academic context and what I go home to when I return to an hour each day. They should align. And so it means refusing to do some of the things that this place insists that we do, while at the same time performing to it. I mean, I still meet the, all the kind of criteria for what a good academic should be alongside their indicators, but I also do the work that I know that as a, the, as a good black follower I should be doing, not that I'm perfect, but um, I, I think, like I'm a big reader, I think we can do it all. And so I think we can write academic work, but not in their way of thinking as an academic work. I know this book will sit in academic um, spaces, that it can fit a whole lot of course readings for any number of subjects that I've taught over the years and that I know about. I know that that can be put to work in that way, but its primary service is to be of service to black fellas. Um, I'm putting into to a black fella book tour and specifically target um, black communities. Um, and I'm in talks with Sisters Inside about doing prison visits and taking the book to mob because this is who it was written for. This is who I labour for. And this is who I want to be thinking with, like our own mob. This is where the theorising comes from. And so, yeah, I like the fact that I cannot be defined and my work cannot be captured by their institutions so neatly. That's what I'm doing with all of those representations of me to show, well, I could be the drunken Aborigine, the violent Aborigine, the, the, the um, you know, the outstanding scholar, um, the caricature of, of Aboriginal, traditional Aboriginal culture. I could be any one of those things and all the time tr they try to define us in a particular kind of way. But sovereign blackfellas are always evading those categories and that also speaks to our power and our strength, our refusal to fit within the box that they insist that we sit within. Well, thank you so much for your work for your voice, for this wonderful book, Another Day in the Colony, and for being with us this evening on Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for your intellectual leadership. It's shown us the possibilities for what we can be in the academy in ways that we just never imagined and giving us the freedom to go, actually, you can make a documentary and you can write fiction and you can, you know, review the whole higher ed in, in this country. So the way in which your career has made it possible for us to then redefine our own, I'm, I'm really grateful for what you've done for us. Oh, thank you. You're going to make me cry again. 
<laughs> That's Indigenous Health Humanities scholar and author, Professor Chelsea Wadigo. Another Day in the Colony is available at all good bookstores in real life or online from next week. To take us out tonight, another track from Barker. This is For My Titters. Barker. Where you going? How you doing? Where you been? I ain't seen you on the scene for a couple of weeks. By all means, stay on your roll. You gotta do your thing. But please don't sell your soul for a couple of jeeps. Embrace your black skin and your race within. You're blessed by your blackness and your dark skin, kid. Race strong black kids. Forever drugs in the bin. And you'll be bound to make your old people look at you and grin. Ha. Stand strong like the matriarchy. And titter, aim higher than the stars can reach. You ain't gotta act different when it comes to me. I believe in your sister, take a walk with me. That's Barker with the track for my titters. And that's the show for this week. Join us again next week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.